Some events stand out against the background and all comparisons, refocusing a sight of the world. For me, one such occasion was a film screening in 2015. Kelly Colliery, the last deep coal mine in Britain, was being closed, despite the country still requiring millions of tonnes of coal, importing our fossil fuels instead from cheaper, dirtier and more exploitative providers. The colliery had provided stable employment to the town for years, limited in the decades since the 1984-5 miner strike, and the mood was grim. Areas with pits shut in the 80s by the 90s were some of the most deprived regions in England, and still to this day haven't recovered. The miners, meanwhile, were being abandoned before Christmas, with no avenue to use or redirect their skills, and they, along with trade unionists, activists, local people and community figures, were left feeling quite battered. The film changed that. The 2014 film Pride told a snapshot of the story surrounding the strike. Lesbians and gays support the miners, a group of LGBT activists from London, turned to show solidarity to the mining communities during the strike, and the film let the moments of glory shine through. It showed the women who'd have previously been described as miners' wives, now becoming MPs. She was there, Sean James. The film shows how LGBT rights were adopted into the Labour manifesto partially due to the National Union of Mine Workers' block vote of total approval. It articulated the homophobia and oppression of the time against the solidarity of those trying to make something better. And there was one song that really started the room weeping, Bread and Roses, performed here by Saoirse Hughes. As we come marching, marching in the beauty of the day, a million darkened kitchens, a thousand mill-offs grey, are touched with all the radiance that a sudden sun discloses. For the people here are singing bread and roses, bread and roses. As we come marching, marching, we battle to for men. For they are women's children, and we mother them again. Our lives shall not be sweated from birth until life closes. Hearts starve as well as bodies. Give us bread, but give us roses. As we come marching, marching, we are standing proud and tall. The rising of the women means the rising of us all. No more the drudge and idler, ten that toil where one reposes, but a sharing of life's glories, bread and roses, bread and roses. The song in Pride started with a miner's wife singing unaccompanied, who was played by the really great Welsh singer Bronwyn Lewis. She was then joined by the women of the village, and then by all, with some Welsh brass bands and some particularly fine choirs dubbed in. The song became a testament there to the dedication of all the women who supported the strike. The group Women Against Pit Closures essentially fed most of the strikers through the year, but also the communities and mining culture, and to the very reason why they strike. Small art and love and beauty their ancient spirits knew. 
it is bread that we fight for, but we fight for roses too. The song in its current most popular version was popularised in the 70s, an arrangement by the activist and singer Mimi Farina, covered by Judy Collins and others. The words came from 1911, written by James Oppenheim, with a tune provided by Caroline Colsart, who's orchestral arranger and choir leader, in 1917. Farina, sister of fellow protest singer Joan Byers, was clearly moved by the poem, forming the organisation Bread and Roses, a non-profit bringing music to institutions from prisons to hospitals. There is even a folk festival called Bread and Roses that continues today, defining itself as celebrating justice and diversity. So where did these meanings come from? Why has this phrase so captured the minds of activists and artists? Through this podcast, we're going to answer these questions through the history of the song, the phrase, and those who fought for a better life. One of the most interesting things about the phrase Bread and Roses is that it's never really created, and definitely not by one person. There are some related phrases. From ancient Rome is bread and circuses, or panem circensis, a patronising look at the needs of the Roman lower classes. If you give them gladiators and food, and they won't revolt. Also in the ancient world, Galen, he was the four humours guy, and he makes distinction between bread for the body and flowers, or particularly narcissus for the soul, a way of trying to keep people well so they didn't get sick in a way that couldn't be cured. In contemporary, well, for 1911 times, the contrast of bread against flowers seemed, if not commonly used, then generally used, but definitely attached to social struggles, of trade unionism, women's suffrage and feminism, and socialism, particularly in Chicago, including what was now known as the Bread and Roses Strike of Lawrence, Massachusetts, in 1912. In 1907, a Scottish trade unionist and suffragette, Mary MacArthur, had come over to Chicago and given a speech on Galen's quote. MacArthur wasn't a typical suffragette. Her activism always held that many of the middle and upper class movements would not achieve suffrage for all women and only entrench the living conditions of workers. In an article by Helen Todd, Chicago reformer and activist, we see that Todd and then other women, a singer, a lawyer and a minister, three years later gave speeches to working women on suffrage. Todd spoke from her experience as a factory inspector and advocated for laws to improve working and living conditions for women, which would be enabled through women's suffrage and through women having the vote. Todd was a member of the Women's Trade Unionist League, and through their work, for example, at the 1910 Chicago Garment Workers' Strike, they improved living conditions, and the phrase, bread and roses, gets passed around activists in the occasional sign. By 1911, it seemed like it got round enough for, for outside actors to notice, for instance, poet James Oppenheim. Now, Oppenheim was a very socially conscious writer. For example, in 1916-17, he spearheaded a magazine, Seven Arts, that was criticised and lambasted for its anti-war politics. He certainly sympathised with the struggles, and he writes the poem, dedicated first to women of the West, but then to the Chicago women trade unionists. Now, the changes from these dedications really change the subtext. Slogan of the women of the West defines it as an American hypothetical project. It also might throw the rising of the race line into possibly a bigoted shade, at least in contemporary interpretation, bearing in mind the rising of far right. Remember who's being considered in women of the West in America. Also remember that Saoirse's performance sang As we go marching, marching, we're standing proud and tall The rising of the women brings a rising of us all The original was We bring the greater days, the rising of the women brings the rising of the race But by dedicating it to the Chicago trade unionist women It connects the poem to actual and ongoing struggles Moving the poem from hypothetical to real And yes, they were struggles Industrial forces and corporations funded private detectives aiming to infiltrate and kill, and the Pinkerton detectives did just that. The Pinkertons were, and are, a private detective agency and private security provider, catering to corporations and government to control employees. 
they were known for infiltrating unions and other groups, forming so-called goon squads to intimidate and assault unionists and acting as private security guards. Four out of five fatalities from the 1910 strike were caused by private detectives and unknown strikebreakers, probably the goon squads, shooting strikers and innocent bystanders. One company guard was killed by strikers, but while violence may have been reciprocated, the atrocities were mostly on the side of the factory owners, press and police. The situation in point. Labourers, women and children, who were not represented by the craft unions, for not being men or English-speaking, toured for hours making $8.76 a week, where their owner, Frederick Ayer, was a multimillionaire, and the factories produced $45 million a year. Some factories, the workers had to pay to drink water on premises, and the doors to their 56-an-hour work week might be locked. In the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire of 1911, 143 died, as women and children either leapt from the multi-story factory to their deaths or faced the flames. When they did go on strike, it was not just the corporation's privately funded militias who fired live rounds into the protests, but liberal lawyers who advocated for it. The city's alarm bells rang in Lawrence in March 1912 when the strike then began. They had never rung before in their history, and it was workers rising that caused that fear. The strike had begun when previous reforms had let labourers, mostly Jewish and Italian immigrants, down. The more liberal and accepted union, the AFL, had negotiated an hours decrease from 56 to 54. The factory kept 54 as the minimum and maximum, and whilst negotiators had assumed the pay would not be cut, given the profitability of the factory, the factory had other plans, and the workers found their pay was down by roughly three loaves of bread. They walked out, and while the English-speaking, male-dominated unions wouldn't really touch them, the International Workers of the World, an anarcho-communist union, had no qualms about that. The strike was successful in spite of opposing unions like the AFL and the UTW trying to break the strike, in spite of plots to smear strikers by planting dynamite in nearby houses. The stories for this broke before the dynamite was planted. The mill contractor was jailed but not the owner, William Madison Wood. And in spite of the murders of strikers and workers. The International Workers of the World sent children to outside states like New York to keep them safe and also generate large deals of publicity as they all carried signs. The state police and private militias beat them when they arrived. The workers challenged the system and won, through the courts and press, through the negotiating table in the streets, and the strike is legendary today for that scale of efforts. There are accounts of fear from politicians and journalists recalling a singing mass of protesters. Mary Heaton Voss, Labour reporter, wrote, It was the spirit of the workers that was dangerous. They are always marching and singing. The tired, grey crowds ebbing and flowing perpetually into the mills had waked and opened their mouths to sing. It isn't all rosy. The IWW were frustrated with the workers for accepting a written contract and packed up and left for other struggles, whilst the workers left the organisation. Without assistance and integration within the other, more permanent unions, these improvements were quickly eroded. The strike's popular name, the Bread and Roses strike, doesn't mean the song was sung there, as the song's melody had yet to be written, and there are few records beyond folk records of any placards. What did happen was that Oppenheim rededicated the poem to Lawrence, in 1915, three years after the fact. From then, and in 1917, when Colesart wrote a melody to teach to her chorus, artists began turning the events into little pieces of legend. The song did see use of picket lines, but also concert halls too for entertainment. Now, the Women's Trade Union League that Todd was organised with was affiliated with the more liberal and passive AFL, who organised the first negotiation and refused to support the strike. But the WTUL did set up relief stations for the strike, and was split in the matter, between those who believed legislation was the aim, and those who wanted to side with workers in the aims of improving contracts and lives. 
Rose Schneiderman walked this line, fighting both sides and popularised the phrase possibly more than any other figure. Schneiderman had a very different life to someone like Helen Todd. She moved as a child from Poland and settled with a family in the Jewish ghettos of Chicago and started work as a cap maker at the age of 16, earning a pittance doing so. By 20, in 1902, she was taking an overt interest in socialism and trade unionism and the fight for universal suffrage. She was secretary and delegate to the New York City Central Labour Union, getting involved in the Women's Trade Union League, but she did not take a respectable civil angle to her middle and upper-class colleagues that frowned on direct action. After the Triangle Shirtwaist fire, she addressed her colleagues thus. I would be a traitor to these poor burned bodies if I came here to talk good fellowship. We have tried you good people of the public, and we have found you wanting. The old Inquisition had its rack, its thumbscrews, and its instruments of torture with iron teeth. We know what these things are today. The iron teeth are our necessities. The thumbscrews are the high-powered and swift machinery close to which we must work. And the rack is here, in the fire-trap structures that will destroy us the minute they catch on fire. This is not the first time girls have been burned alive in the city. Every week I must learn of the untimely death of one of my sister workers. Every year thousands of us are maimed. The life of men and women is so cheap and the property is so sacred. There are so many of us for one job it matters little if 143 of us are burned to death. We have tried you citizens. We are trying you now and you have a couple of dollars for the sorrowing mothers and brothers and sisters by way of a charity gift. But every time the workers come out, in the only way they know how to protest against conditions which are unbearable, the strong hand of the law is allowed to press down heavily upon us. Public officials have only words of warning to us, warning that we must be intensely orderly and must be intensely peaceable, and they have the workhouse just back of all their warnings. The strong hand of the law beats us back, when we rise, into the conditions that make life unbearable. I can't talk fellowship to you who are gathered here. Too much blood has been spilled. I know from my experience it is up to the working people to save themselves. The only way they can save themselves is by a strong working class movement. She went on to leave the WTUL, before returning again, this time becoming its president until it disbanded in 1950. Schneiderman campaigned for voting rights, but addressed the working men on their own terms, reminding them that their support for their wives would only help all workers, leading to changes in New York and preparing the ground in Ohio in the 20s. Schneiderman was someone who was the Roosevelt's introduction to unions. She campaigned to take in Jewish refugees and succeeded in part, and worked in the 30s with black women workers in their industrial campaigns. She defied the organisations that she worked for, but she never gave up on them, and won labour reforms, legislative changes, organised direct action, whatever necessary to improve the problems in America. Whereas the bread and roses that Todd argued for were natural, domestic, and really tapped into the ideas of family values, Schneiderman speaking instead looked to people where they are rather than where organisations would like them to be. This is her in 1912. What the woman labour wants is the right to live, not simply exist. The right to life as the rich woman has it. The right to life and the sun and music and art. You have nothing that the humblest worker has not a right to have also. The worker must have bread, but she must have roses too. Her speaking was just generally ingenious. She could overcome barriers to opinion through amazing rhetoric and by clever reframing. She'd start her speeches outlining isolations, barriers, acknowledging the difference in views her subjects would have, but then showed how unified they really were, framing her Jewishness, her trade unionism as American, a time when communists and Jews were under deep suspicion, and even liberal le leftists were accused of being communists. 
and this was before the first Red Scare, after the First World War in 1919. These things would have derailed her had she been open. Her principles and aims stayed the same, only her immediate goals would change. So how does this all fit into the song? The line that Schneiderman told is a bit of a dividing fault across the left. Brennan Roses was missed out of many of the early trade unionists and leftist songbooks of being too full of imagery, too flowery, compared to the classics that were incorporated. Later, trade unions sought to make themselves appealing to government, so Friss and Crowd were replaced by a happy working-class man with a guitar singing treble clefs. These songbooks tended to include You Are My Sunshine over anything as overtly political as Bread and Roses, even though they did include Solidarity Forever. It was left behind, however much it was occasionally sung pickets. Hell, even its publishing originally has this split. Life in Labour magazine, the journal of the WTUL, which hosted much of Oppenheim's work and stories and accounts and articles, was funded through philanthropy, the same charity gift Schneiderman would pan. This philanthropy was the work of Margaret Dreyer Robbins, Schneiderman's predecessor as president of the WTUL. The journal focused on uplifting content, poetry and art to match the middle class ideals of the paper's de facto owner, as Robbins' power of the journal was profound. It worked, it worked well, but it also alienated many working Jewish women, leading to editorial splits that didn't always involve those women. But even moving forward, a paper founded on philanthropy couldn't easily manoeuvre out of it. These splits between hierarchy, managed by well-meaning but harmful middle-class ideals, and a radical but grassroots approach were everywhere. And Schneiderman walked those lines, lost friends occasionally, but brought about change. When I first heard Bread and Roses in the film Pride, it sounded fresh. Now, I've been politically conscious and active for a while, so I knew about Solidarity Forever and songs like The Red Flag and The Internationale and Bella Ciao, but Bread and Roses, Forgotten, walking a line between old debates that shatter and eroded conditions like the minor strike, seemed fresh. Rose Schneiderman's dogma was brilliant against the 2015 Labour Party that voted for welfare cuts and is even today a very middle-class party above all else. It told me, a musician who really needed to get out and care more, that compassion and care could win if we get involved and listen and fight, educating, agitating and organising. Helen Todd lived until 1953, supporting women's rights to the end and looking after the families of communists who were deported to the US. Rose Schneiderman lived till her 90s, alone from 1937 when her partner Modo Farrell Schwartz died and she thus treated her niece and nephews like her children. Oppenheim's career as a feminist ally died quite quickly, judging by his wife divorced him following his novel Idle Wives. The song found its own fame. John Denver made his own version, along with Judy Collins and others, and Utah Phillips, replacing, as Saoirse did, the line about standing proud and tall for its counterpart that is often construed for fascism. Sometimes its lessons died hard. New feminists and workers in the 70s asked for bread, not roses, sick of the feminising and patronising talk and assumptions that they were surrounded by, and made up their contracts. Mimi Farina's influence is still felt, with the organisation Bren Roses still going strong, and there are even now several organisations that have Bread and Roses as their motto, their slogan, their logo. As for us now, in the UK, our productivity has risen for years, and our wages have not. Britain has among the worst rates of inequality among developed countries, and Britain's rate of mental distress is some of the worst in Europe. Work kills more worldwide than wars. Our labour is outsourced, and unionists and even centrists are described as communist agitators, a claim that is often more farcical than appalling. 
Our corporations and government are on an environmental path that will shatter our way of life, from droughts to pandemics and famines arising from chaos, from loss and diversity. Maybe we need some of our myths back from Lawrence. No one really sang Bread and Roses in 1912, but the activists who worked for it found it on their lips, and the songs cannot be denied, and so that imagination is stronger than the lies and fallacies we're surrounded with. No more the drudge and idler, ten that toil where one reposes, but the sharing of life's glories, bread and roses, bread and roses. Hello, my name is Amy and I'm from Wakefield Litfest. I'm here today to talk to Isaac about the process of writing his episode. So Isaac, would you like to introduce yourself? Yes, hello, um, I'm Isaac Boothman. I'm a I'm a musician, a trumpet player, composer, singer, and I do fair amount of work, try to do some workshops, and generally unemployed, living life. So you talked passionately about the song Bread and Roses. Has this song inspired you in your pursuit of music or even politics? Um, yes, definitely, D- uh, absolutely. Like that song, it was kind of like going. Because it was so fresh, because it kind of appealed, because it had so many like layers of different meanings, it just it absolutely inspired me. And just went, oh, hang on, like you can do this with music, and lots of music that that I've come across and experienced being involved with doesn't like community very much. So to have something that to to experience something that is so community like it's it's so community orientated, it just went oh this is how I can help, this is what I can do. So it was, yeah, it was a huge influence. That's wonderful. Um, so were there any other songs or subjects that you considered writing about for the podcast? I think I was kind of, I was kind of tempted in a way to go like from another angle and go from, it wouldn't have been a very inspirational story, but it would have been going from art music and like Western European classical music and how there, how like some of the people involved that have tried to make it political and w- what directions that's gone in. So like so like composers like um, like Shostakovich in Britain who have kind of political reputations, even even though a lot they didn't really work like that. They just kind of sympathise with it and and some really complicated questions, but. Um, I was yeah, I was tempted to go from from the other angle, but it wouldn't have been very inspirational. So, how have you found the process of writing and recording an episode of a podcast? Fun, yeah. It's it was it it it, it was it was really fun. It was challenging because it was like I finished university like recently, so you go from doing essays, which it, it's a different style of writing, and also similarly not very community focused it's trying it's trying so hard to to be correct that it often takes itself away from its best use um so trying to getting to do something more journalisty and being able to to kind of connect dots that wouldn't always be possible it was it was really fun and also ch- good and challenging to get my brain back in research mode it was very fun. So speaking of research, were there any resources that you found particularly helpful when you were writing your episode? Oh yes, so 
I can I I'll reel off some ones. So um, there's an an account of the Lawrence strike by uh, that is kind of published by the by the International Workers of the World, which is biased, obviously. That was quite good for realities of the strike. Um, and then Peter Kvideras, Peter Kvidera has an, this article that's looking at how Jewish socialist and trade unionists use their uh, Jewishness and their surroundings to to try and affect change and redefine America. It, really interesting. Um, and there's a fantastic a 2020 article that um, traced Bren Roses and like sorted out some of the myths because songbooks aren't very good for uh, actually documenting who wrote them. Like a lot of them attribute uh, Colesart's work to a woman called Martha Coleman, uh, who doesn't seem to exist. I don't know. I, 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 yeah. Also, really useful was Socialism to Social Justice, Feminism, Rose Schneiderman, and the Quest for Urban Equity by John Thomas Maguire. That was really useful. Okay, so a bit more of a fun question now. If you had the chance to hang out with any of your subjects, who would you choose and what would you do? Ooh, um, okay, if it was James Oppenheim, I'd probably hang out with him and then, like, try and roast him quite a lot. Just because, like, he seems <laughs> cool, but, like, the, but the fact that he kind of did all the, like, artwork and all of the... Um, like he wrote a great poem, but then kind of kind of traded off that and didn't really make his wife very happy. So you know, is he? Yeah. Um, Rose Schneiderman is just every single fact I learned about was like, oh my god, you are like so cool. Like it, I, I, I wouldn't say I, I would enjoy the time spent with her because I'd probably just be too shy to do anything. But like you know, <laughs> it'd be great. Um, Helen Todd seems nice. She's uh, really done so much great work. Very, um, I think we come from quite different backgrounds in a bit of a way. Thank you for joining me today to answer my questions and thank you for writing and performing this episode. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Today's episode of Who Came Before was written and performed by Isaac Boothman with music by Sorcerer Hughes and theme music by Branwen Mun. It was edited and produced by Amy Winder for Wakefield Lit Fest a literature festival funded by Arts Council England and IBE. Find out more, find us on Twitter at WakeyLookFest, on Instagram at WakeyLookFest, or search for us on Facebook. Thank you again for listening.